This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris. I'll be sitting in for John O'Brien. As we approach a spooky time of the year, no, I'm not referring to the U.S. election season, we may be finding ourselves slowly drawn towards unnerving but entertaining cautionary tales. One of those stories just may be the award-winning TV show The Handmaid's Tale, based on the best-selling novel by author Margaret Atwood. In this episode, Atwood is joined in a virtual conversation with the author and Dear Sugar's host, Cheryl Strayed. They discuss Atwood's inspirations and sources for her work, while addressing a few connections readers of her novels are making with the world today. Atwood also discusses her latest novel, The Testaments, a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. The book follows three women and the choices they make to fight for what they believe in. The novel continues in the tradition of its predecessor by featuring some of Atwood's most iconic themes of identity, religion, climate change, and power politics. Margaret Atwood is an award-winning author. In 2019, she was made a member of the Order of the Companions of Honor for Service to Literature. Cheryl Strayed is the author of the best-selling memoir, Wild, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail. She also is the host of the New York Times hit podcast, Sugar Calling, and also Dear Sugars. This talk was presented via live stream by Seattle Arts and Lectures on September 9th. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. And hello, everyone. I know uh, we would normally be gathered in a big auditorium in Seattle, but the beauty of this is people from all over get to be here tonight and and hear what Margaret has to say. Hi, Margaret. How are you? Hello, Cheryl. Nice to see you. I think the last time we spoke, we were just disembodied voices. We were. So yes. this is the third time we've spoken in the span of a year. The first time we met in Dallas and when the Testaments had just come out and I talked to you, I interviewed you about it. And then you were on my podcast on the telephone and here we are. I, I can't, I mean, it's kind of stunning to look back over all that's happened in this past year. How are you doing? Very, very, very crazy year on many, many different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so the global, the political, the United States political, the COVID, uh, and the personal. Very weird year. Yeah. So how, how, um, how has it been for you to really go through this? We, we are in uh, a, a phrase I've heard a lot over this past year, especially this past six months, is that, you know, the apocalypse is here or that we're living a dystopian reality. I want to ask you, obviously, a lot of specific things about the Testaments, but, but I thought I'd just start off with asking you, you know, what... Are we in a dystopia? Like, how how are you feeling about what's now? Um, what's now? What's your um, perspective? It could be a lot worse. That's my perspective. <laughs> I love that. Okay. And, and let us hope that it does not become so. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But it's it's not good, Cheryl, and um, it's not good for a lot of people. And uh, as as for me, I'm I'm in a relatively safe place as long as I don't disobey the younger generation and do anything rash, like getting into a taxi. Um, so other people, on the, on the other hand, globally and, and nationally and on state levels are having a pretty horrible time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this book. Uh, it really began with The Handmaid's Tale, published in, was it 1985? 85, 85 in, in Canada, 86 in uh, the U.S. and England. 
And uh, that was before the internet, Cheryl. We could have different publishing seasons for the same book. <laughs> way, way back in the in the pre-dawn, it, it, those those old days before the internet. I'm curious about you know I, I'm always I always love to hear about the origin story of a book. How you know so so of course the testaments begins with the Handmaid's Tale. So let's I would love to hear how you came to write that book. What what was what were what was your state of mind? Where were you? Why did you write that book? What were you thinking about? And then why all these years later, the testaments? Yeah, okay, so let me take you back a little bit in time. We we had the sixties, uh, which you were possibly not around for, Cheryl. I was born in sixty eight. I just made it well, in at the very yeah, end. Kind of you squid squidged in there. I don't remember um, it. <laughs> oh, oh, shucks. Well, I sure do. Uh, because we had uh, the civil rights movement. We had the assassination of Kennedy. We had the, um, uh, the 60s. In 66, I would say the 50s turned into the 60s. Uh, and we had um, the miniskirt. We had the summer of love. We had hippies. So we didn't start out with hippies in the 60s. We started out with beatniks and existentialists. And then we had the second wave. And were you movement. were you a beatnik or an existentialist, by the way? I was more of an existentialist than a beatnik. Okay. Yes, we, <laughs> we were more Paris-oriented uh, rather than on-the-road-ish because right. on-the-road-ish things have been pretty much for guys. Yeah. Um, but you could be... A, possible existentialist if you had a black turtleneck and some dark eye makeup. Okay. So, so we will imagine you in, in eye makeup and a black turtleneck. Giving it a good try. Uh-huh. Um, you, you really ought to have had long, straight black hair. Mm. I did not have that, Cheryl, but I did my best. Yeah, and um, you did pretty well for yourself. Well, not in those days particularly, but <laughs> but moving on, we, we then had at the end of the 60s, the um, second wave women's movement kicked off in public. It had been simmering away in an underground fashion. And we had we had read the feminine mystique in our bathrooms with the door closed and nobody would see us doing it. We had read Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, but that was kind of it. But then along came the public launch of the women's movement second phase and that gathered a lot of steam in the 70s in the 80s we had the pushback because there's generally a pushback um and we had the election of ronald reagan and we had the emergence of the religious right and we had people saying publicly um women should be in the home so i had a couple of questions that i was asking myself because books usually begin with questions. One of them was, if all these women are out there running around in the way they are and having jobs in their own bank accounts, how are you going to get them back into the home if mm. that's your goal? How are you going to squish them back into there? Um, don't say COVID-19. It's not fair. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't thinking that way then. Um, so that was one question. The second one, because I've always been interested in totalitarianisms, having been a child of the mid-20th century, a boom time for totalitarians. If the United States were to be a totalitarianism, what kind of totalitarianism would it be? And also, how fragile is the kind of democracy that we now think we have. So we are seeing some answers to that question in real time. Um, and let me just add a little footnote um, to all of that. Down the street from where I was going to college was Marshall McLuhan. And mm -hmm. he was the person who said, when a new media comes, comes online, as it were, when a new medium enters the picture, such as the Gutenberg Press, such as movies, such as television, such as radio, such as the internet. It's always disruptive to the existing order. So this time it's the internet. It's been very disruptive. Hmm. So th you were thinking about all of that in the early 80s when you 
Yeah, you all, first all, came to Handmaids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a, an evil and devious and sinister mind, so I was also thinking if I were going to do this, you know, be a totalitarianism, how would I do it? How would I I get the women back into their homes? Well, Mm -hmm. I would just reverse history. I would run the movie backwards to about 1850. Okay. So no money of your own (laughs) for starters. Right. And uh, you're not going to get on a plane by yourself either, by the way. Uh, And because things that are valuable are always... um, the, the elite in any society gets more of them if they're considered valuable. Uh, if fertility becomes valuable become, because it becomes rarer, which it's already doing in Western societies, who's going to get more um, baby-having women? But then I went right back to the Bible and said, what would it be like if we really did take it literally? You know, how literal do you want to get? Mm-hmm. And that's how The Handmaid's Tale, the premise. That's what it came out of, is that that, uh, conflux of questions plus the observation that uh, when people are scared by by anything, um, such as um, climate disasters, um, such as um, social disruption, they become more conservative. And whoever appears and says, I'm going to fix this for you and make the trains run on time, um, that person will get a certain following. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you said something really interesting when you, uh, you said you'd paid a lot of attention to totalitarianism and also that you have a, a, what did you? How did you say a dark? You know, like that. You're curious right. about evil, the nature no, of I evil. Have a, dark, a dark, evil, sinister mind. Okay, so yeah, okay, so, I put it more. You have yeah. a dark and evil and sinister mind. Yeah. I love that. Uh, Writers do. Well, you know, I think they kind of have to have. I think I you're right. I don't mean I let it control me. I, I I I fight against it, Cheryl. But but I do do feel, for instance, if you've invented a new internet internet technology, what you should immediately do is hire a bunch of black hats and tell them, try to get into this. You know, let's see if you can hack this. Right. Because somebody's going to do it. They're going to make that attempt. But I'm curious about where that came from. I mean, I know what you mean about writers having a certain kind of curiosity, but we have curiosities, I would say, about different, about different things thankfully, because then, you know, we have very different books. Um, Mm -hmm. But what do you think in your past, in your childhood, what about the nature of these, uh, of evil has been um, fascinating enough for you to really build whole worlds around, around it? Okay, so if you're born in 1939, what did you live through? World War II. Uh, and there was a lot, there was a lot about that, and particularly in the, I would say, 10 years after it. Um, So that would be a pretty formative period for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was published in um, 1949-50, approx? That would be 1984, a very formative book for me. Mm -hmm. But also formative was a book called Darkness at Noon, which was about Stalin's show trials. And uh, Fahrenheit 451, of which you know, um, so I was reading all of those kinds of books when I was an when I was an early teenager, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of your takes on life come into focus then. So there are going to be a lot of early teenagers right now who are going to have found this uh, COVID period very formative. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're my age, it's two years out of out of your eighty years that you've lived. It's not a long time. But if you're 14, two years out of that 14 years is really a big chunk of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so, yes, you're going to see uh, a whole different view of life coming out of that generation. You, you haven't seen it yet because they're not old enough yet, but you will be seeing it. Right. So The Handmaid's Tale went on to become, I don't need to say to all of all of you, many hundreds of people who are who have tuned in to listen to us, uh, 
really such an important book, such uh, it became a TV show. Millions of people around the world have absorbed this story. And it was only a few years ago that you decided, am I right? You only decided, you you didn't know all along that you would write a sequel to the book. I, I forcefully said I would not. Because because what the people asking meant was, could you continue the story in the same voice with the same character? Mm-hmm. And, and I actually could not have done that. Um, it just would have sound like, sounded like a kind of imitation. Um, I think it's always difficult to continue in the same voice of a voice that seems very complete to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so... However, politics changed again. So in the 90s, I thought, okay, we're going away from the Handmaid's Tale. Berlin, Berlin Wall had come down. Um, a lot of countries that had been behind the Iron Curtain became democracies. Um, people thought we were just going to have the end of history and a lot of shopping forever after. So a few things had not factored in yet. 9-11 hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. The full impact of climate change had not become apparent. Scientists and biologists had been talking about it for a long time, but mostly to themselves because no one else was listening. So, and then came the big financial crash of, of 2008. So things seemed quite shaky all of a sudden. Having seemed quite solid in the 90s, they now seemed quite shaky. And then we saw the the real the horse got out of the barn as far as um, robot influencing of the internet went. So nobody was expecting that. In the early days of the internet, it was all, oh, this is going to be so great. We'll be able to share all our ideas and mm-hmm. uh, not, we didn't factor in the idea that some of those ideas, some of the stuff that was going to be shared was number one, false, and number, number two, malicious. Uh, so that got going. And now you have a very polarized um, America, and that's that's not good for the world, Cheryl. Mm. It, is, it is not good that some other country we shall not name should become a world leader instead of the United States. It's not a good thing. So that was already starting to happen in 2016, and in 2016 we were already starting to film the Hulu series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Handmaid's Tale, and I hadn't seen all the scripts because they hadn't been written yet, but I'd, I had seen a couple of them, and I was in one of the shoots. I'm actually a character in one of those scenes. What character are you? I'm a bad character. <laughs> there, are, there aren't a lot of roles for people my age in that series, just putting it, putting it very right. gently. Um, so I'm, an, I'm one of the aunts, and I'm wearing this really kind of eerie, uh, awful brown uniform. Right. And um, I'm in the scene where somebody bops Elizabeth Moss over the head, and that person doing the bopping was, was me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think that puts you in a really exclusive category of people to have bopped Elizabeth Moss over the head. Oh, I thought you were yeah. going to say a real exclusive category of people uh, who have been characters in their own well, yes, made of their own book. So there's that. Sense. There's that too. That's. A, but I, I think it's even in a smaller character, the bopping. Well, so, it's even it's even better because she turned around and said, "Bop me harder." She <laughs> <laughs> so didn't do it hard enough. Come on, lean into it. She wants it to seem real. So was yeah. it in some ways the TV, the, the series? Did it in some ways spark your your uh, th- this sort of idea of writing a sequel in the uh, Testaments? No, I'd, I'd already had that idea, but it, it, they ran in tandem. So I was, I was writing the book as they were writing their scripts and neither mm. one of us knew what, what the other people were writing. But we did, we did of course talk over some ideas. So Bruce Miller is the showrunner of that show. So we would talk over ideas and he would tell me uh, changes that he himself was going to make to the book. So, um, the Serena Joy character becomes younger. The commander becomes younger, and I have to say, quite a lot sexier. Uh, the <laughs> they always make them younger and sexier uh, in the well, in the book to screen transition. They? Yeah, yeah, don't they? <laughs> Indeed, um, but they do. So, so that did add, as Bruce said, it would. It added quite. It added another dimension of tension. Mm-hmm. Where because you had to. As you were writing the testaments, 
make sure that, well, th- did you have to sync anything up with the TV show or how did that work? Okay. So um, we conferred, but, but since I was writing about a time period 16 years later than, than the events unfolding um, in the series, I was writing about a time that they hadn't entered yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had to make sure that the backstories didn't contradict each other. Right, and that they didn't kill off anyone. Oh, I was very firm about that. Uh, <laughs> right. You may not kill that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would I be a disaster. At some point, you may not kill that baby. We're not going to be killing any babies in the show. Um, mm. So, yeah, anyway, they weren't going to anyway, they said then. But but they, they do it in a writing room, which is sealed. It's sealed like a bank. Um, so you're not allowed in there and I'm not allowed to know what they're doing in there until I actually get the script. Oh, okay. And you get the scripts in, in various versions. So they, they have revisions and, um, I get to comment, but I don't get to decide. Mm-hmm. So I have input, but no power. Got it. So it was, so meanwhile, you're, you're there writing, but like, why did you decide to write the sequel? I mean, was it, it rose out of the political necessity of the moment? That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. So having, having seen totalitarianisms, I was interested in how they got going. You know, how come this happened in this country? Uh, what they did while they were in power, and it's really quite a lot the same stuff, no matter what they say they're doing it for, it's still very similar. Mm-hmm. And then how they crumble. Like, what is the point at which they've gone too far? So I was actually in Berlin when the wall was coming down. Mm-hmm. And that was an unexpected event. I'd, I'd begun writing The Handmaid's Tale in Berlin uh, five years earlier. And nobody thought, nobody thought then that this was going to come apart anytime soon. Mm-hmm. The only person who said something like that was Richard Kapuczynski. And, and he was Polish. And it did start to crumble in, in Poland first. So well, are you... East, East Germany was very tight. Like, of all those satellite countries, I would say it was the tightest. Are you... You know, one question I know you get a lot, and it's, you know, it's something that I... When I've talked to people about your books, both The Handmaid's Tale and, and The Testaments, it's there. there's often this comparison made. They say, okay, the current political climate in the U.S., uh, are we, you know, I, I think sometimes in, in the most despairing moments, people, like I said earlier, feel like, okay, we're heading towards a dystopia where, where in some ways there are some parallels to what's happening in the United States and, and in other countries too, uh, that are comparable to the Republic of Gilead, which is the world of both of these books. I, I think that's, I'm more optimistic than that, but I'm curious what you think of those parallels or comparisons. Okay, some people in the United States might tell you that they've been in a living in a dystopia their entire life. So we've heard quite a lot about that recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the United States is an extremely various place. Mm-hmm. It's extremely varied. Um, and it, it's varied from one state to another. It's varied from one um, income level to another. It cannot escape its history with race. Right. There's something about that that's very formative for it as a country. Um, but it also is, is an ordinary country. So I don't think it's going to lie down easily for a totalitarianism of any uniform kind. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's my, my view. I also re- remind you that people in the military take an oath of allegiance to the Constitution. They do not take an oath of allegiance to an individual. Mm -hmm. And the American Revolution was fought because they did not want a monarchy. They did not want a king. Um, And and they became a republic. They, They did have some thoughts about that. They almost made George Washington king, and he said, that's a really bad idea. Um, so they wanted they wanted um, uh, independence from from Britain partly for tax reasons, um, but they also decided not to be a monarchy. 
So anybody who really tries to put a, net, a monarchy back in there, I think is going to get some pushback um, from people who still believe in, in democracy and in the constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I mean when I, I, I'm trying to remain optimistic as, as we are, you know, we head towards the election. The, the, uh, one, one of the most powerful things I think that I've heard you say is that, first of all, I just, for those of you who are, uh, listening who haven't read, uh, the Testaments and, or Handmaid's Tale, like terrible, terrible, terrible things happen in them. You know, I terrible things. I could have made them much worse. <laughs> <laughs> terrible things happen There's to people. things in reality. There's a ruthlessness yeah, and a cruelty yeah. that pervades uh, a menace. I mean, it's just absolutely, you know, wrenching. And one thing that what I was going to say is the powerful thing that you've said to me before and to others is you didn't write anything in these books that, that you couldn't say has actually happened to people. Like I think about, I mean, there are so many examples uh, that not not just in history, but now that these things are happening to people who live. Yes. Can you talk about that a bit? Uh, Well, that was my rule for the handmaid's tale. It was also my rule for the Testaments and it's the rule for the people writing the series. And one of the reasons for doing that is I knew people would say, my goodness, you have a, um, a very weird, twisted, bizarre imagination. Mm. And I wanted to be able to say it is not my imagination that is weird, twisted, and bizarre. Um, it is; these are all things that human beings have done. So they're all possibilities and are doing, and and are doing. Um, so just just now, an opposition reader in in Violet Roos was snatched off the street. We don't know what's happened to her. Um, we had an opposition leader in Russia poisoned. Um, they, these are not stories from the Middle Ages. They, they are happening now. How, how many environmental journalists have been shot? You know, this, this stuff is happening. Right, and slavery still exists today. Slavery yeah. still exists uh, in various different forms um but it it certainly still exists and why you know why did you decide that that was such an important value uh for for the the world of the story that it had to be tied to this realism oh it was a it was a a value you mean that things had to be real Mm -hmm. i I guess i'm i'm interested in the i guess Mm -hmm. i'm interested in the real world but mm-hmm. but also I'm I was um I joined Amnesty in 1970 um, for these very same reasons. It was a number of totalitarianisms at the time, including the Argentinian generals, uh, and st- and helped to to uh, form Canadian Pen in the 80s. So it was more narrowly focused. It was writers had been imprisoned mm-hmm. um, for what they had written, whereas Amnesty was was um, people, um, was prisoners of conscience. Mm. Um, so bo- both organizations are human rights organizations, and you you do hear a certain amount of poo-pooing of, of human rights, but you should go back and read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, upon which the Universal Declaration of Women's Rights is predicated, and the Declaration of Indigenous Rights. Mm. So the real question is, should people have rights? Should only some people have rights and other people not have any? And if the latter, who's making that decision? Who's deciding that certain people don't have rights? Yeah, these are the questions that run like a very strong current through the Testaments. And the story is focused, it's told through the perspectives of three women, Aunt Lydia, Agnes, and Nicole slash Daisy, depending on which name she's going by. Um, and I, I would, I'd love for you to talk to us a bit about they're women of different ages, diff- very different circumstances, and yet all uh, connected deeply um, in, in their relationship to the Republic of Gilead. 
why did you choose to to tell the story in this in this sort of multiple perspective? Uh, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, <laughs> people people have an idea that that writers plan everything out, right? And possibly some of them do. And if you're writing a murder mystery, you kind of have to, because you have to know who done it, and then you have to strew some red herrings around so we will be deceived. So so you really, as Edgar Allan Poe said. You're writing murder mysteries backwards. You begin with the end. Um, but that's not what I do. I kind of jump into it and um, and see what works. And with the, uh, three, the three voices, you're going to get a very um, different perspective with each one of those voices. One of them is a girl who's grown up outside Gilead, um, but knowing about it because they they take it in school, as she says, mm-hmm. and um, the other one has grown up inside Gilead, therefore not being able to read, but 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 learning how to embroider, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I was always a pretty crap embroiderer myself, Cheryl. But <laughs> I was I was good at knitting, um, and the third one is, is Aunt Lydia, whom we have seen only from the outside in The Handmaid's Tale and more intimately in the Hulu series because she is played by the quite brilliant Anne Dowd, who also reads Aunt Lydia on the audiobook of the Testaments. Such a nice person. <laughs> and then transforms into Aunt Lydia. Right. Uh, very interesting how actors do that. So she's a lot older, and she's seen the beginning of Gilead. She was there at the beginning. And she has achieved uh, some power within that organization because she has knowledge. She's sort of the J. Edgar Hoover of Gilead. She knows a lot of dirt on people. Mm -hmm. And that can make you quite powerful. It can also make you quite feared and... um, it also means that you really have to watch yourself because some people are going to want your power and other people are going to want um, to get rid of the dirt that you have on them. To destroy you. Yeah, I mean, I thought that Aunt Lydia was it was just such an absolutely compelling and fascinating character. And and part of it is, I, th- I think you so beautifully show her evil, but also her her motivation in the form in the testaments you, you tell Lydia's backstory, like how, how did she become uh, this person uh, in, mm-hmm. in the Republic of Gilead? And there's this really one of my favorite scenes in, in the book is, or it's not see it's a pat, it's an extended several scenes in the book where you're really telling the story of her abduction and, and an essentially indoctrination um, and I'm curious, you know, different different people in that, you know, in that circumstance responded in different ways. And Lydia decided to to do whatever it took to save herself. Well, what are, what were her alternatives? So, well, so, to die. Some of her. Yeah. yeah. yeah so you're going to be a martyr, mm-hmm. or you're going to be a collaborator. Those are the choices at that moment, and those are the only choices. So, what would you have done, Cheryl? Well, I think that I, I wrote down one of my favorite quotes from the book is what we all think is, well, I would never do this or that. I would never do what Aunt Lydia did. And yet uh, uh, we never, as you said, and yet we, we've never had to. I think none of us can genuinely answer that question until we've been put in that circumstance. Unfortunately. So I'm, I am old enough to know people who were in the res, in the resistance in World War II. So from Poland, from France, and from Holland. Um, and those were interesting choices. They they were not the same as as Aunt Lydia choices because they were um, they were civilians whom people did not suspect. So they were unsuspected. A lot of them were quite young. By, by quite young, I mean, they were teenagers when they were doing these things, quite remarkably. Um, so if people say, you know, surely, you know, Nicole and, and Agnes were too young to be doing these things, precisely the opposite. It is often young people who do do those things mm. because they, 
they aren't entirely aware of the risks. They're not totally focused on, um, they don't have a real older person's fix on mortality. And they don't have uh, families by which I mean children. Mm-hmm. So very interesting to hear the stories of, of those people, which of course had some some influence on my writing of the book. Mm-hmm. What have you made of watching the the massive protests in America over the last several months? I live in Portland, Oregon, where uh, there there have been protests. Now I think it's night like one hundred and two or one hundred and three. A lot of young people and people of all ages, but it mm-hmm. it, it brings to mind, uh, you know, the the energy of the youth who are saying it's time for change. Yeah, for, for for sure that, and for sure extinction extinction rebellion. Also, young people, very young people, getting it going, mm-hmm. um, and that's another important issue of our time. the The Black Lives Matter protests are different from the nineteen sixty eight ones in that people across the board have been involved. Mm-hmm. Like across the board, uh, it is not um, just black people doing this. And according to the polling, which is very different from 1968, um, the majority of Americans agree with them mm-hmm. that um, it's time for uh, structural change. Um, hmm. The way people have been doing things, it's time for that to change. So I would say signs of hope, um, that's a hopeful sign. It, it's not definitive. Um, you remember Occupy Wall Street. Did it accomplish anything? So these things can happen, and then and then they go away. But I, I think this one has moved the needle. Yeah. And and I think what moved it, again, it was the existence of the cell phone and the Internet. So it's different to have somebody tell you uh, there, there are racist things happening out there. But if when you see it, that's a very different kind of experience. Mm-hmm. So it's the cell phone that, that changed that. It's the cell phone in Central Park in New York. Um, the dog let off the leash episode. Oh, mm-hmm. We saw that. We saw that. We heard that. Right. It was, it was real reportage. And I think it goes back to your question of why did I want to have only, only things that have precedence in real life in these kinds of books. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to just be fantasizing in some quite sick way um, about people being able Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I want those things to have really happened. Well, and I think too, I one mean, of the, want, I'm taking it that I'm not happy that they happened. If I were going to put them in my book, I wanted them to be based on reality. Right. I think one of the, the, the things that's so powerfully effective in your work, all of your work, but in the Testaments, uh, you know, the way too that you, the, the way that, that power is expressed and held, it's, it's not, um, it's in the little, you know, little things like, okay, um, you can only wear this kind of clothing Mm -hmm. or, uh, you can only do these kind, this kind of work. You Mm -hmm. cannot read, you cannot be even Mm -hmm. learn to that, that there are all these many different ways um, th- that are essentially the forces of oppression. Yeah, they're, they're ways of controlling people. Right. Okay, so getting them to um, walk only on the path that you wish them to walk on. And you, you don't get these things going without offering some uh, candies and, and not just, you know, not just fear. So what people are told is that, that they're going to be safe. Yeah. That's the candy. So the trains will run on time. You're going to be safe. And we're doing this for your own good. I'm sure you have heard that before. Well, and, and, and white supremacy will stay intact. I think that's the, you know, a message that is, is communicated a lot in, in many different subtle and not so subtle forms. Okay. And, in, the, in the book, it's very clear. 
Yeah, um, right. National um, South African before the uh, before the overthrow of white supremacy. They they used that pattern, so the national homelands pattern, which was used in the United States and Canada on Native North Americans. Um, so it was also used, by the way, on on white South Africans in the Boer War. Um, so you 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 put people in a you herd them, and and you put them into a, a confined area, and that is where they shall stay. It's it's usually a, a confined area with with very few amenities, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. We've this is you know one thing that we're missing when we're online rather than in a room in front of people is you know I know you to be actually an incredibly funny person. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not being I, very funny, am I? And I yeah. laugh a lot. If we were in an auditorium, we'd be laughing. We would we would find the humor. And what's happening is there's a lot of darkness. And yet, what I want to say, and I thought that this was the most powerful, beautiful. I cried at the end of the testaments, and I don't want to, you know, give away the book. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you out there haven't read it yet. It, I, I do want to say it's absolutely riveting and beautiful, and it's it's difficult and sad and yet it's also incredibly incredibly powerfully optimistic and i think that there's a great uh sense of of beauty at its center and also at its end and and i'm curious ab- about that can you talk about um how do you, how do you can you talk about the end in a way that is like not no, giving I can't away? Talk about the end. <laughs> okay. The end. <laughs> talk about. Can you talk about hope? Can you talk about optimism? Can you talk about um, how the how we continue to to find you know light and joy and and uh, reach reach for change when it feels impossible? Like your characters are so trapped in a system that's built to hold them down. And yet they continue to, to reach. They, they do. And, and people did. So again, I'm, I'm basing it on real life and I'm basing it on people that I have known who have been through some of these incredibly horrible um, situations and who managed to um, get out of them. Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to talk to them. Um, not, not unchanged by having been through those situations. No, you, you don't come out of that the same person that you went in. Um, so I was, I was, I was very interested in that controversy about the military that was going on in your country, and I, I said it at the time that that no politician in Canada who who said that kind of thing would have a hope of getting elected, because mm-hmm. the First World War, the the number of uh, Canadian soldiers killed was far disproportionate to the population. Second World War, similarly uh, amazing um, stories. And no matter what you think of war, and of course we all know it's bad and 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 very damaging to people, um, all all kinds of people. But but even people who have gone in and come out again, they they don't come out the same as they went in. So I married into a military family, you may say, because Graham's dad was a general in World War II. So we have quite a connection, particularly with Holland. Um, and the stories of, of everyday heroism are quite astonishing. So th- that's all true. Mm. You know, it's, it's all true. It happens. Um, people in the resistance, enormously brave. A number of them died. Um, not quite a few of them died. A number of those people in the resistance were women. Um, amazing stories come out of those situations. But as one of the the people I was talking to said to me, pray that you will never have the occasion to be a hero. Mm. Because occasions to be a hero are usually pretty dire situations. The building's on fire, you run in. Um, the plane is drowning, you, you swim out. You know, if, the, if the building weren't on fire and the plane wasn't drowning, you wouldn't have to do those things. There wouldn't be any call to do them. 
So this is what this is this is these are the this is one extreme of what human nature is capable of. And then we have the the other extreme, which is the um, the part we don't like, you know, the part we don't want to acknowledge. So let's take some questions from the audience. If you're out there listening to Margaret talk about the Testaments and you have a question for her, please pop it into this screen here. And, and also you can look at the questions and vote for those you want me to ask. I know looking through them, we've kind of covered a lot of them. Margaret, you know, so many of the questions are about things like things I asked, you know, what is, is, are we in Gilead right now? Are we heading there? Not yet, not yet Cheryl, or you wouldn't be wearing that nice sweater that you've got on and, That's and right. you wouldn't be allowed to talk to me because you wouldn't have internet access. We wouldn't uh, so be able. We are not. We are not in Gilead yet, and and we will, uh, we will cross the, all of our fingers and toes that we will not end up in it. Okay. So listen, people, we're not in Gilead. Margaret Atwood said so, and she's the author of that book. Yet. Okay. I said, I said yet. <laughs> yet, yet. So now here's a great question from Hillary. She says, "I'm always reflecting on freedom to versus freedom from." Yes. Where do you think we are now? That's a deep question. Oh, I think we're in the middle of the of the soup. <laughs> what kind of soup we're is in it? The soup. Oh, yeah, we're in the soup with all the ingredients swirling around and yeah. people stirring the pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I don't think we are either um, in the place where we're it's freedom from because basically you're not allowed to do anything. Um, but we're we're certainly not in in freedom. Too, but we're probably a little bit more in the freedom too. You've still got the freedom to vote, by the way, if you can sort of thrash your way to the polls. Because I understand somebody might try to stop you from doing that. Yeah, you know this. Hillary's question reminds me of something I I wanted to ask you, and it's about you know obviously everyone in the Republic of Gilead is, is is constricted, but no one more so than women. And so much of that is centered around reproduction. And it's, it's biblical, Cheryl. Um, so it's the Rachel and Leah story, but it's also St. Paul who said, um, you know, through women, evil came into the world, that old, even the apple story. Um, but they can redeem themselves through childbearing. Mm. How about that? Wow. Go to it. Yeah. And, but I think here too, this is a really fascinating point for now, because of course, you know, these, these battles that, you know, you asked me, was I, I was born in 1968, you know, and so much of the sixties and seventies in the U S and, and Canada and, you know, it was, it was about like abortion and birth control and the sexual revolution and all this stuff. And it seems as if the question of reproductive rights uh, should be one that's behind us. And yet it keeps it, the the page keeps being put like on the, you know, (laughs) right in front of us. And it's, it's very central to, to the human psyche. Mm -hmm. So, and, and there's a biological reason for that. Um, If people hadn't been interested in it in any way, if people had not been interested in, in having sex and, and having babies, we wouldn't be here, Cheryl, um, because there wouldn't have been any babies. So there wouldn't have been any mommy and daddy of you and mommy and daddy of them and all the way back. So it's very central to the human psyche and and how people negotiate that and what kind of value they place on it and decisions that they make about who shall have a baby who shall be allowed to keep their baby. There was a lot of baby snatching going on in the 50s that that you think of as being a pretty placid and Elvis Presley-ish type of era, although we were all terrified by being blown up by atomic bombs. We've kind of forgotten about that. Um, But this was, it was the era of um, homes run with mothers. You had the baby immediately was taken away from you and adopted out. And not just in the 50s, in the 60s and into the 70s. Yes, that too. Some countries even even later than that, it was 
was the big snatch amongst um, Australian Aboriginals and Native North Americans. Uh, children were taken away from their parents at really quite an early age and stuck into these residential schools, which, of course, the average person knew nothing about until this was all uncovered recently. And um, this is pretty scandalous, but, but again, it's about it's about children, like who has control of them. And this okay. is why you have pitched battles at home and school associations and parents wanting books taken off the curriculum and um, a lot of anxiety about teachers and what they're teaching and, and, and what sort of sex education is going to go on in the school. Um, so going back to the, to the 90s, to the 80s, uh, when I had uh, school-age kids around me, they were teaching um, child comes home from school and says, guess what we t- took today? And I say, what? We took tampons and Wendy's broke. <laughs> <laughs> now, the chance of that happening in 1948 was zero. Right. Um, so so there's there's always a bit of a disconnect between... <laughs> What parents think should be taught in schools, because that's what they were taught, and and what kids actually know. Yeah, you know, they they generally know more than you think they know. Yeah, I think that's an old old story for sure. You know, sometimes they know it in a very weird, convoluted form, but but they know there's something going on that yeah. adults are not telling them about. So here's a question. Um, which of your apocalyptic stories have you been most worried about coming true is a question. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm not the only person writing ap- apocalyptic stories out there. So there's a number of different takes on this. But but I will say in a very comforting way, Cheryl, and I hope you're going to feel comforted. Okay, I'm ready to feel comforted. Okay, there is no the future that is set in stone. Mm. There's not an inevitable the future that is inevitably going to happen to us. There are, there are possibilities. And these kinds of stories are following up possibilities that are with us today. But that doesn't mean they're going to happen. So you That's right. These sorts of stories in the hopes that they will not happen. That's why you tell them. Yes, that's sort of. Sort of That's, like the little Red Riding Hood story, you know, don't talk to wolves in the forest like that. Um, that's, the, that's, the, that's the hope I needed, Margaret. That's so wonderful. It's, so, it's not necessarily the future. So we, we can change the future by how we behave today. Right. And that's why I say, hooray for Greta Thunberg, go Greta in yeah. Extinction Rebellion. Oh, yeah. make, make the politicians pay attention. Because all of these things are connected. So mm. the, the worse the environment gets, the worse the food supply gets, the more social disruption you're going to have, the worse it is for women. Okay? Because when there's social disruption, it's always worse for women. Um, and the more wars you're going to have. But worse, worse of all, if you kill the oceans, off goes our oxygen supply. So we'll be operating on only 20 to 40% of our current oxygen supply should the oceans die. The original atmosphere of this planet was not an oxygen atmosphere. The oxygen was made by, by plants splitting H2O into H and O. And, um, and if those plants shut down their systems, marine algaes in particular, we will not get that oxygen anymore. So pay attention to the oceans, folks. And the future is not set in stone. It's up to us. So Penny asks, what keeps you resilient in these times? I think you've mentioned a few things already, but is what's keeping you resilient? What's keeping you feeling like (laughs) that we can make a future? Am I going to be very silly and say vitamin D? Um, Vitamin D. <laughs> I, I don't think that's a silly. I think that I think that that's. How do you take your vitamin D? Do you get it in no, the form of sunshine, or do you? Yeah, D. B is good too. B complex is for people my age, um, which is so, two hundred. Um, yeah. So, 
So yeah, what what keeps me resilient? Um, I'm curious, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. So curiosity is kills the cat, but it 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 also keeps you very interested in what's going on. So uh, I posted something just the other day on Twitter, which was from a, a young man. He's in his early 30s who has a very rare form of cancer, and he's he's writing his his final take on things. Here's what I would like you to take away. Here's what I would like you to do. And he says, "I'm I'm really quite sad that I'm not going to, I'm not going to be alive to see what happens. So sooner or later, we're all going to be in in that position because there is going to be a what happens next mm-hmm. um, for all of us. But my mother was like that when she turned ninety. She said, "I, I want to see the year, um, I want to see the millennium come in." Because I want to see what happens. Mm. So we thought New Year's Eve. We thought we should do some fireworks for her. She couldn't. She couldn't see very well by that time. But we thought we would set off some fireworks in her backyard because she would be able to see them. They'd be quite bright. So my sister goes out there and she she lights off the firecrackers, and and they set fire to the backyard. Oh no! <laughs> so it was quite visible. Yeah, she saw the fire. How she did old see was it? When at that time she was ninety, about approximately. Yeah. And, and when she died, how old was she? She was ninety-seven. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Do you have? Do you want to live to a certain age? Do you have? Do you, what, what do you think about your own mortality? It depends what shape I'm in. Um, so if I'm in reasonably good shape, why not? Um, if I'm if I'm in terrible shape, why? Mm. Like that. So if I'm if I still am in good enough shape to be curious about what happens next, uh, I'd say, uh, hooray for me, and um, I'm up for it. But if I lose interest, then then I'm gonna then I won't uh, be keen on it. How are you? What do you? What does happen next for Margaret Atwood? What are you <laughs> writing another book, or what's happening? I'm not telling Cheryl. I'm <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very bad luck to tell about what you're doing because then you might not do it. Okay. Like said, there is no the future. So just because I start a book, there's no guarantee that I'm going to finish it. Oh, please don't so, tell me that. Please don't I'm tell me that. Tell um, yeah, it's happened before. Uh, you know, sometimes things just don't work out, and you have to throw them. You have to throw them away. Okay. That's well. my other encouraging word. It happens to everybody. Yes. Um, so I do have a book of poetry coming out in November. I guess that's what what happens next. But but in between now and November comes my my favorite holiday of the whole holiday year. And what is that, Cheryl? Is it going to be Halloween? It is. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do on Halloween? No smart jokes from you about broomsticks. <laughs> I'm not having any of that. I'm sure you would wear a broomstick quite well. Um, you don't actually wear the broomstick. Well, you kind of mount it, I guess. I, I guess yes. it seems important to say that you would mount a broomstick well. <laughs> Thank you. What are you? What are you going to dress up at? Do you dress up? Uh, I have done so. Yes, I've certainly done so, and I think it's going. This year is going to have to be a dress up year because we have a a four and a half year old in the household. Oh, so we were we are going to um, dress up as things. So I haven't entirely decided yet. Um, I don't think it better be too scary, though. Right. Well, it should not be really scary. Well, that's right. You know, a good go to is a cat. Well, nobody in their right mind is honestly afraid of a cat. I mean, I know a lot of people. Don't, are they? don't say that, Cheryl. I love you're cats. You get a lot of hate mail about I'm that. Get, I, yes, I, people okay, love I, cats, but some people are actually quite afraid of them. I'm a. I know, but so I, I, I please my apology to the the people who are afraid of cats. I, I, I understand. We have different. I just am a. I love cats. I have three cats. Wow. Do you have any animals? Last time we talked, I'm, you were trying I've to... Had, I've had animals, you name an animal, and if it's not a goat or a pig, I've had it at some point in my but life. Just, do any animals currently live in your house? Last time we talked, you were trying to get rid of the squirrels that live outside of your house. Did that, yeah. Okay. Fix them. What's on um, the inside? Any other animals? Yes, on the inside, we have... 
Yeah, so those, those little things with a lot of legs are, are house centipedes, and they're they're actually quite beneficial. Oh, so no. I allow them to live in my house, but they only come out at night. So do I currently have any pets? Not at the moment. Got it. Uh, but but my neighbor's got, got a very cute puppy just now, so Aww. I have a puppy visitation uh, privileges. That's beautiful. Okay, back to some questions. Um, are there? Uh, this is uh, from Janine, who says she's been revisiting some of your older work, such as wilderness tips. Are there any books you would particularly recommend for this political environmental cultural moment? Older books from other people. Um, um, not necessarily from other, just other books. They could be you or, or other others. Yeah. I, I do make reading lists uh, from time to time. And um, I was just asked to pick a political book, my favorite political novel. So I don't do favorites as such, but I thought I would pick one that people might not be too familiar with. So I picked Mephisto, Mephisto by Klaus Mann, M-A-N-N, who was the son of Thomas Mann. And Mephisto was actually made into a pretty uh, striking film of the same name, Mephisto. And it traces the career of an actor in Germany in the 30s. So he starts as a kind of Bertolt Brecht lefty actor, and then Hitler comes in. What's he going to do? But he weasels and worms his way back in and cozies up to the new regime and rises like a bubble, meanwhile betraying and disowning all of his former pals. Um, And it it is a pretty fascinating a study of of what a person who has no essential power, namely an artist, um, does in a totalitarian time, mm. where to okay. make the, make the wrong move is going to cost you your neck. Okay, so we are now getting towards the end of our 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 discussion. So I thought I'd ask you. There are some quick questions here that maybe we can do it like a speed round. Do you want to try that? Oh, gather myself together. Okay. Okay, let's go. Speed round question one. What is your favorite bird? Is this like speed dating? Yeah. Todd says, what is your favorite bird? Todd, you rascal. Um, (laughs) All right. So I hate choosing amongst birds, but I would have to say raven is my favorite bird. It is the smartest bird. Okay. That's the highest um, IQ of any of the other birds, including parrots. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Okay, speed round question from Liz. Were you influenced by Ursula Le Guin, and did you know her? Yes and yes. Me too, yes and yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So yes, uh, I read Ursula Trilogy, which I really loved, and it's an example of a so-called kids or young adults book that reads up adults can enjoy it just as well. Uh, and I also, at the same time, uh, read Left Hand of Darkness. And if, if you can, if you want to read me writing about her, uh, I wrote a quite a long piece for the New York Review of Books um, further on in her career. And I also wrote uh, two obituary pieces for her when she rather unexpectedly died. Mm. And uh, one of them I wrote on a plane because, of course, when people ask you to do these things, you have to do them really quickly. And I wasn't expecting that, and therefore I wasn't prepared. So I really had to, um, I had to apply myself. Right. Yeah. So she was a she was a, an amazing person, and I recommend her her last book of essays, um, mm-hmm. which has got some some. She started writing a blog when she was in her eighties, eighties, and these are her mm-hmm. collected blog pieces. But they're beautiful. They're beautiful essays on a range of subjects, including. One I would recommend called On Anger. Okay, next question. What advice, what writing advice do you have um, for a new writer? Don't be scared of the page because nobody's going to see what you have written on it unless you want them to. Who are your... Just go to it. And then if you don't like what's on the page, you can always throw it out and nobody need know. That's true. Okay, another one. Who are your heroes? Heroes. Well, now, um, they tend to be people who have taken 
uh, considerable risks in a selfless manner. I guess that's what we mean by by hero. Uh, but I would have to, um, I have to give that some thought. That's a deep one. It's a deep one. So and by I, the way, nobody's perfect. So you might have a hero who did something horrible like smoking. <laughs> too, too bad. And lastly, what's on your nightstand? What are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading such a big pile of books. So what did I read last night? So I'm going to be interviewing Jody Picot. Mm. Oh, she's great. That is an interesting thing. So the book that I'm reading is the one that's about to be published. It's called The Book of Two Ways. And in it, the um, and, I'm, and I'm thinking of, of casting a horoscope for her central character. I think I can pretty pretty much do it. <laughs> um, I think the central character is a, either a Gemini with Scorpio rising or a Scorpio with Gemini rising and has got... Um, Venus in the in the third house in Gemini, because the operative word in the wait a minute, world, back up. Are you so you know a lot about astrology, Cheryl? <laughs> how could you doubt me? <laughs> okay, oh, I'm going to yes. call you for a, 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 an astral reading after this. Oh, you can do that online. <laughs> um, once upon a time, I drew these horoscopes with them, a compass and a protractor. Because they because online hadn't online hadn't been invented yet. Um, anyway, back to Jody's book. The, the word two is very important. It's called the Book of Two Ways, and our heroine has got two careers and two men in her life, and the two ways in the title refer to an ancient Egyptian map of the underground, which shows two ways of getting around the lake of fire. Um, so she's. So there's a lot about ancient Egypt in this book, in her life as a, as an archaeologist. But, but in her other life, she becomes. Did you know these things existed? She becomes a death doula. I I did know. Yeah. You, well, I didn't know. So this is something new that I found out. As my daughter, who is more your age, I would say, um, or closer to you, possibly yeah. than me. Um, had she ever heard of it? And she said, oh, yes. <laughs> like, oh, sure. You know, who doesn't know that? Well, I didn't know it. And um, so I found that part pretty interesting. Wow. I said, well, we'll ha- I'll have to check it out. So yeah, I think my, maybe I'll have an, an, another career. Maybe I'll be a, a death doula. What do you think? I think you yeah. would be an extraordinary one. I, for one, would welcome you. Welcome you to my deathbed, Margaret Atwood. Come on, drink up. Here's your drink. Just, just chug it down. You always make me laugh and you always make me think and you always make me feel. And I know that I am speaking for 676 people who are tuned in here um, saying thank you for sharing your, your self with us on the page all these years in the form of your beautiful books. I hope you all go out and buy the Testaments and also this forthcoming book of poetry, which I cannot wait to read. I'm a big fan of your poetry, by the way. It's, and it's so not, it's not, it's not universally cheerful. That's that okay. I don't need universal cheer. I just need a little, little glint, little spark of light. And you always give it to me. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. And thank you all for joining us at the Seattle arts and lectures with Margaret Atwood. Lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you as well, my dear. Thanks for tuning into this podcast episode of Speakers Forum for KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This talk featured author Margaret Atwood in conversation with the author and Dear Sugars host, Cheryl Strayed. They discussed Atwood's latest novel, The Testaments, a sequel to the best-selling novel, The Handmaid's Tale. It was presented via live stream by Seattle Arts and Lecture on September 9th. Tune in again soon. Tune in again soon.